1: Two pitch. A swing a prime. Deep
2: left. Hey everybody, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer back together to 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 look at a baseball America podcast who analyzed all the many things that happened at the trade deadline. We've been through a lot of trade deadlines here at Baseball America. Um, that was one of the wildest, I would say. I, I would say we had 72 prospects traded in July, which is a lot. We had maybe, I mean, one of the biggest trades as far as talent for talent of all time. I don't know no way to say it, Juan Soto. And we had other moves that the Luis Castillo deal in a normal year would be a blockbuster trade deadline trade. And because of when it happened, we kind of are looking at a situation where it's like, oh yeah, by the way, do you remember that the Mariners also added a, a number one slash number two starter? Do you remember when that happened all that many, many days ago? But Kyle, you were at San Diego yesterday for the arrival of Juan Soto. We're gonna start there logically, which is now that the dust has cleared, What is your first takeaway of the biggest trade of the deadline? Juan Soto to the Padres, The Padres, most of the Padres' remaining top prospects and some major leaguers headed back to Washington, D.C. in return.
3: Yeah, so first and foremost, um, one important piece of context I think we have to keep in mind when discussing this trade and why the Padres were willing to give away such a massive talent package. And to be clear, it was a massive talent package. I've seen some people trying to downplay it. Um, It's just inaccurate. But the important piece of context is that the Potters, for all the flash and flair and all the big moves in the A.J. Preller era, they have one winning record in seven full seasons under A.J. Preller since he took over as general manager. And that was the coronavirus shortened 2020 season. For all the big moves they've made, this team has not been competitive. They have not been a winning team. And that's a big part of the reason why the Potters at this point were willing to make such a big, bold move because... The time is now. There's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of buzz. There's been a lot of flash. There's been a lot of flair. And it's mostly come up empty. Um, you know, Peter Seidler, the owner of the Padres, is AJ Preller's fiercest defender. It's not that Preller was on the hot seat. But there's there's a growing frustration and a, a lack of patience among the fan base of, hey, keep doing all these things, but it's not working. These rosters still have way too many holes. And that was why the Padres were willing to make such a big move. I, I talked to one of their high-ranking officials yesterday, and he talked about, you know, We had opportunities to acquire, you know, potentially an Ian Happ or a Brian Reynolds for two of these guys. But we figured if we're going to make a big move, let's make the biggest move possible and get a player of this caliber. If it means we have to trade two more guys like this, he's going to be worth it. Um, And we saw just the immediate impact last night, you know, being in San Diego, in the clubhouse. Um, As soon as these moves were made, the stadium, the game sold out. Uh, the atmosphere at Peco Park last night was absolutely electric when Brandon Drury hit that home run on the first of uh, his, that grand slam, excuse me, on the first pitch he saw as a Padre, the stadium exploded to a level. I mean, I've covered world series games at Wrigley Field and Fenway Park. Um, last night was every bit as loud and insane as some of those games and just the energy in the clubhouse, the buzz among the players, the, just the entire city, everyone's talking about this. I mean, they electrified the franchise from top to bottom with this move. they electrified the fan base and they're a significantly better team. I mean, this is a win all around for the Padres and they were willing to make this move because they need to win and they need to win now.
2: The other thing I would say with that is, is that yes, they gave up a lot of talent, but this is not a team that pushed all the chips in to win just this year. This is a team that will have basically all the key pieces from this year's team back next year, They will have the majority of pieces back the year after that. And then at that point, you still have cornerstone players that you have locked up for the long term. But at that point, you are talking about that's when Soto reaches free agency. That's when you will have, you Darvish will be a free agent. But you don't, you're not looking at this like, to me, one of the key parts of this is, this is a trade and the reason the cost is so significant is you just added another cornerstone to a team that had many cornerstones already many uh, one of the best players in baseball and you're getting him for this year for the next year and the year after which does 3 years is about as far a window as you can realistically look at for the non-dodgers teams of the you know out there in the world
3: It's been funny to me how many people have been like, oh, it's only three years. Three years is a long, long, long time. Think about how different the baseball landscape was three years ago. Who was good? Who wasn't? The Red Sox were the defending champions and the Nationals were on their way to winning World Series. Forget the baseball world. The world in general. Think how much the world has changed from 2019 to 2022. Three years is a long, long, long time. What?
2: (laughs) What's COVID? What what are you saying? There's this COVID thing? Yeah, 2019, we didn't know what COVID was. It
3: is a long time. And and someone asked me, do the Padres have to extend him to make the trade worth it? No. If the Padres make multiple postseasons and get to a World Series and, of course, potentially win a World Series, it's worth it. If they do that and he leaves in free agency, it'll have been worth it. Uh, Let me even make an argument a different way, which is,
2: if you're a fan of a team, what you want... This is a you want to win. You want your team to win, but it's also an entertainment product. And this trade, all the other moves that San Diego has made, this is whether San Diego wins three World Series in the next three years or zero World Series. This is the most fun time to be a San Diego Padres fan. Maybe I I know that they have gone to World Series before, but maybe ever because it's going to be a ride for multiple years. This is a team that is now one of the epicenters of baseball. And even, hey, I remember 84. You can go back. I'll go back to 84. San Diego wasn't
3: the epicenter of baseball in 84. It had a great year. You know, I 98. I was nine years old in the stands for all those postseason games between the World Series. It was a great run, but the San Diego Padres were not the epicenter of baseball. And, and, and it's not just soft factors like you're talking about, there's a huge financial component here. Again, a Wednesday night in August, the stadium was to the brim. Out in center field, they have a uh, green, a grassy knoll area. You can buy staying room only tickets. You couldn't see green last night. It was wall to wall people. I mean, they're making money hand over fist in light of this trade, or I should say they will be. And that is a huge component to this as well.
2: The other thing I would say with this is, this is the thing that to me really does stand out about this, is I think you have to give a whole lot of credit to Padres ownership because San Diego does not have dramatic advantages. If this was the Dodgers... If the Dodgers had acquired Soto, which was also a possibility, we could be rightfully talking right now about, I don't know if this is good for baseball, that the Dodgers are the team that can just get the best player every time because they've added Mookie Betts and they've added, you know, they just Max Scherzer, Trey Turner, they can just go out there and do this. You can't say that when San Diego, San Diego is the 28th media market in the country. And, but you're, and I will ask you this because you're out there, you understand this market better than I do. The key also component is, is that San Diego is effectively water and land locked from the standpoint of their, the market for which they pull fans from. They have, yes, there are two teams to their north, northeast, northwest, I should say, but one of which is the dominant team and has been the dominant team of Southern California for over 50 years now, 60 years. There's a limit to what the Padres can do, but even with all that, they've gone out there and become, they operate as a large revenue, big market team, even
3: though they aren't. So it's a little complicated because the Padres acted like a smaller market team and, and the TV market stats are a little misleading because there's two big things that people miss. First and foremost, San Diego is the eighth most populous city in the U.S. And there is a ton of disposable income here. Five of the richest zip codes in the nation are within 20, 30 miles of Peco Park, La Jolla, Coronado, Rancho Santa Fe, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of money. There's a lot of people with a lot of money. And the Padre's TV deal is actually, they make a lot more than the 28th most. So they get decent money from the TV deal. But the other issue that's missed with the market is Mexico. That's not included in that. And a huge portion of the border just south of the border is Padres fans. A lot of Dodgers fans, once you get deeper into Mexico, but if you include Tijuana and all the local areas, it's actually much larger. So that, that's always been a little misleading. At the same time, it's more mid market than large. And Peter Seidler, to his credit, has opened up the wallet and said, hey, we know that to compete, I've written about this extensively, if you want to win a World Series, you have to be in the top half of payroll. To acquire the stars and depth necessary to win a World Series, that's the threshold you have to cross. There's no real way around that with one exception, uh, the Marlins. And he recognizes that and he's willing to spend. And that's a big component. Um, you know, the thing, oh, by the way, Pottery's also got Josh Hader, Josh Bell, and Brandon Drury at this deadline. So yeah. like And here's the craziest thing. They paid the Red Sox $44 million to basically take Eric Hosmer. In 2010, the entire Padres' payroll was $37 million. The Padres are paying more just to get rid of Eric Hosmer than they paid an entire team in 2010. So you, you had a post up today, go check
2: it out, baseballamerica.com, about the 66 prospects and recently graduated prospects who A.J. Preller and the Padres have traded in the past, I think you used 33 months. So let's just say just less than three years. Mm-hmm. Here's the other thing that stands out about that. When I, I scanned that whole list, right? All 66 players. I could make an argument that if Cal Quantrill was on this team, he might be in the rotation. I think that David Bednar would clearly be one of the better relievers on the, in the Padres' bullpen.
3: Ty France would be a huge part of the lineup. They're all Ty France, not.
2: but but it is 66 players they have traded we
3: may be done. I could probably find another reliever. Yeah, I mean, it's Andres Munoz. I mean, there's five or six guys you look at and say, okay, yeah, they, they, they would help the team right now. But for the most part, five or six out of 66. You know, and again, a lot of those guys are still in the minors, are still making their way up. And it's a long way from a full final accounting. But when you talk about a team that is in a period to try and win right now, you know, all things considered, looking at the total context of all the guys they've traded away versus who they could potentially use right now. It's pretty heavily in the Padres' favor.
2: Pretty heavily in the Padres' favor. And and they, the other part of it is, now you want depth, but you field nine players in your lineup every night. And you have a pitching staff of basically five starters, and then you have another eight relievers. Beyond that, Having surplus value when you're trying to win, again, now, next year, the year after, is nice. Depth is nice. But having, having C.J. Abrams say, okay, he's – C.J. Abrams is more valuable to the Padres right now in his – was more valuable in his ability to get Juan Soto than he is in trying to figure out where he plays for San Diego right now. And that's about as good a prospect as was involved in the trade. Doesn't mean that James Wood may not end up being a great national. He may, but I, and that's like, now let's flip it to that, which is Kyle. Kind of like, now, if you look at it from the national standpoint, we talked, we did a podcast about this before the trade. Now, as you look at it, what do you think about the return of what they got for soda?
3: Yeah. I think it's important to really clear up some misconceptions. I've been seeing things written and I'm not just talking about people on Twitter, but like reputable media websites who, who, have never seen these players and don't really know prospects or just making assumptions. um, Those flat out incorrect. So let's be clear, objectively, we've gone back, we've done the research, we've measured it. This is the largest, most substantial trade return in a generation and probably longer. We went back and looked at 30 plus years. You went back to the 1984 Ricky Henderson trade. I mean, this is a absolutely massive haul of legitimate talent that has a chance to help the Nationals become competitive again in the next three, four, five years. The Nationals significantly altered their outlook, bringing this group of talent back. So I want to go through these guys real quick because I'm seeing a lot of things written that are just blatantly inaccurate, and I want to clear it up. And it's being written by a lot of people who look at a guy's baseball savant page for two seconds and make a judgment as opposed to knowing they're understanding and watching these players. Um, you all know, BA, I've seen this system for years. I've seen all these guys Many, many, many times from years across from A-ball, in the case of Abrams and Gore all the way to the majors, scouts, front office officials, done the work. Like we know who these guys are. So Mackenzie Gore has premium stuff. His fastballs back up to 97, 98. He'll flash you a slider and curveball that flash plus. They more settle in, average to above. His changeups a plus pitch when he throws it. Four pitches that are major league quality. Three on a good day, three of them are playing plus. His issue. His delivery, his mechanics get out of sync. When he's right, he's dominant. He was great for the start of this year. His mechanics started to fall out of sync. He's really struggled recently, but you're talking about a 23-year-old lefty with four pitches, a fastball up to 98, who's a premium athlete and a great competitor on the mound, still has some things to work through like most young pitchers. The list of young pitchers who didn't look great or struggled their first year or two and turned out really good is a long one. This is a mid-rotation or better starter as long as he gets his delivery in sync and there's reason to believe he will he showed it to you already this year cj abrams people trying to judge him off his major league debut or beyond premature he was not ready to be in the major leagues he had never played a day in triple a when the padres pulled him up put him on the opening day roster he's not physically ready to be in the majors he needs to get stronger he's a very young kid and he never got a chance to develop an approach against upper level pitching he had a partial season in double a that's it Padres threw him in the majors, replaying him every second, third day, moving him around. It was inconsistent playing time. Sent him back down, which is where he should have been in the first place. Machado got hurt. They brought him back up. He was a little better, but still not getting consistent playing time. Throw out whatever data or stats you've seen so far. You should never hold against a guy what he's done when he's not ready to be in the major league, and especially when he's not getting consistent playing time in the major leagues. The smartest thing the Nationals did was they sent him back down to AAA Rochester immediately. He needs a full season in A to hone his approach. Skills perspective, it's uncanny bat-to-ball skills. Just a gift for getting the bat to the ball. Insane speed. He can make you know game-changing plays, beating out infield singles, going first to third, scoring from first to home. He can do a lot. He's kind of still bases. And he plays a pretty good shortstop as well, again, for a guy who had barely played upper-level baseball. He actually – didn't let the speed of the game get to him he played really composed he's a fine shortstop he'd be a gold glove level second baseman he's going to be fine just needs to hone his approach a little bit against upper level pitching which takes time and reps um, you know in terms of expanding the zone against velocity but he's going to be a dynamic leadoff hitting everyday middle infielder who's going to hit for high averages and steal a lot of bases that's a really good player Robert Hassel and James Wood are two of the best outfield prospects in the minors Hassel hasn't absolutely gorgeous left-handed swing smokes the ball all over the field again still needs to get stronger has a chance to play in center Um, you start talking about a a potential up the middle core of kbert ruse behind the plate uh, cj abram's at shortstop and and then this outfield you know you draft elijah green he's probably going to be the center fielder surround him with Robert Hassel and James Wood I talked to a GM about this and he said in five years the Nationals could have the best outfield in the National League with Robert Hassel on left Elijah Green in center James Wood in right all these guys are studs Wood's a freak athlete with massive power and he has a chance to be a superstar and oh by the way Harlan Zuzana is the talk of the complex leagues right now in Arizona as an 18 year old up to one of two 18 year olds throwing that hard actually generally is not a good thing. It doesn't work out well, but he's big, he's physical. It's big stuff. And if something goes sideways, he can still be a lockdown closer. All five of these guys have all-star potential just straight up. They do. That's unanimous from scouts, executives, people who have seen these players and know these players. Will all five of them get there? No, we know that. That's the nature of prospects. But if two of them get there and one or two other guys become useful contributors, you know what? You start to see the, Next good Nationals team taking place. If you can go up the middle with Caber Ruiz, CJ Abrams, Elijah Green, you have that outfield I talked about of Green, Hassel, and Wood, you start adding some arms with, you know, you have Cade Cavalli, Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray. All of a sudden, the Nationals future starts to look a lot better. Just to be frank, the Nationals future looked awful before this trade. I'm not saying they should have traded Juan Soto. I'm not saying they're better for doing it. Not at all. The Padres did great here but the nationals future outlook is significantly brighter today than it was before this trade. And the general feedback talking to people in the game is the Padres did great here. They're going to be happy with this, but the nationals did very well as well. And they're going to be happy with this in five years, even though right now this hurts a lot.
2: Okay. Now I'll be the, I'll be the, the wet blanket approach. Not that these are all like you laid out like things that I I don't really disagree with your assessments, but here's the, Here's where this could go sideways for the Nationals. Oh, there's many ways to go sideways. Right. But let's, let's start with Mackenzie Gore. Mackenzie Gore, as you noted, has struggled at times to maintain his delivery this year. Mackenzie mm-hmm. Gore last year struggled all season to maintain his delivery. His stuff backed up. Mackenzie Gore the year before that struggled to maintain his delivery. It is a It is something that hopefully he will improve, but it has been a, this is not like a blip for him. It is a, a long-running, continuing struggle for him, because partly because he has a very complicated delivery to some extent. So it's it is one that is more difficult to maintain. So that's the question with him. C.J. Abrams is going to be a useful member of the Nationals. I find it almost impossible to believe that he won't be that. The question is going to be, as far as upside, is what you said, does he continue to get stronger? Because if he gets stronger and he is young, he has his, his prime years are far ahead of him. But if he gets stronger, then you are talking about a potentially impact player. If he does not get stronger, then there is a limit to his ceiling. Then you talk about Hassel and Wood, both of those guys, they're the reason a that, right, they're a ball. They're an a ball. James Wood has made significant strides. If you go back not that long ago, he was at IMG Academy and struggling to make contact. He is a, you know, he's, he's been a better pro than I would say that he was as a, uh, as a high school player, which is a credit to him and improvement. But there is going to be the, the standard thing when you have someone with such large levers, it's the, it's the O'Neal Cruz Aaron Judge conundrum. You could be a star, but it also is going to be about being really on top of your swing having to do the, the things really well because you have such large long levers and there, you have to have a, you're going to have holes in your swing just because you have so much ground to cover. And then Susanna, as you said, he is a really interesting prospect, pitching prospect. But if you're a Padres fan, you can think back and it's like Anderson Espinosa, when we acquired him, was this interesting as a pitching prospect. Um, Adrian Morahone coming up was this interesting as a pitching prospect. Like, he, it's, it's about health more than anything. Is the hope is, can he stay healthy with exceptional stuff? I do agree with you. I think that this is about as – it's hard to look at this trade and say, oh, the Nationals got fleeced. No, they got I, – I, it's hard for me to come up with a trade package from someone else where it's like, oh, well, clearly, couldn't they have gotten more for Juan Soto? They got a haul. But that said, you know, it, 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 it gives them a shot. But the problems they have now are much more around the fact that they re-upped uh, Steven Strasburg. They signed Patrick Corbin to a long deal. And they did not re-up. They did not manage to re-sign Bryce Harper. They traded away Juan Soto. They traded away Trey Turner they've let they they were unable to resign Anthony Rendon. They had this incredible core and it's all gone now. But that's that's where it gets interesting to see where they go from from here.
3: And I would say, you know, again, every single prospect in the minors has a scenario where they could work out and a path where something could go wrong. Every single one. There is absolutely a possibility that all five of these guys bust. That's prospects. But at the end of the day, when you look at like you said, how good can these guys be? What have they shown us so far? What is their ability level? It's been pretty good all the way around, and I agree with you. Like I said, there is no better package out there that was on the table where they reasonably could have gotten more. Again, this is a huge, huge, huge package. Could the Dodgers have offered more if they wanted to? Yeah, but you know, clearly they didn't want to. And this, there's nothing wrong with this package. Um, if you're the Nationals, this was the kind of package where they said, "Hey." We're gonna hold off unless we get exactly what we want. And a young big leaguer, three top hundred prospects and another really good young standout. You're not gonna get more than that. Again, literally no one ever has. I will go back objectively. This is the largest, most substantial trade return in a generation. We're gonna have to see how it works out. If you're the Padres, you're very, very happy today. The Nationals, we're gonna find out. You're not happy today. The next two or three years are gonna be rough. There's not a lot of reason to go to Nationals Park in the near future. But once they made the decision that this was the road they wanted to take, this was the best possible package they could have gotten. And in the grand scheme of things, once you've decided you're going to trade Juan Soto, the package you got back from him, if it's this package, you're happy with it.
2: So the other thing I would say with that is, is we said, like we looked at the Baseball America era because that's the stuff for which we have data. It is probably fair to say that it's not possible to do a prospect trade in the pre-baseball America era that could have been larger than this because prospects were such a different, we were in such a different world. I cannot imagine a team in the forties, fifties or sixties saying there wasn't free agency for one thing. So you weren't trading in most cases, your star players at 23. But if you did, you were doing it for big leaguers, not, oh, we've got this package of guys who we don't have a pro scouting department, really. We got some area scouts who kind of see some guys every now and then. We have no statistical analysis of any of this. It just would have been almost impossible to make a trade like this before this. So it may be the largest prospect trade of all time. We're now gonna dive in. We cover the Nationals, we cover the Padres. There's a lot more to cover. And we'll do that right after a quick break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. And we're back. So, Kyle, that's the biggest trade. But obviously, <laughs> there were a lot of other teams. We're not going to be able to cover everybody. But who is a team or who are two teams that really stood out to you as far as buyers who really did a lot to help themselves?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I look at the Phillies a little bit just in terms of, you know, they're not that far to playoff position right now. And you add Noah Syndergaard, who You know, his stuff is down, but he's actually pretty consistently been giving six, seven innings, even with stuff that's down. He's been okay. You add David Robertson and, you know, they gave up Ben Brown. He's a nice pitching prospect in the grand scheme of things. They didn't give away a whole lot. Um, I thought they did a good job. I thought the twins did a really good job. They needed, you know, we talked about it on the pre-deadline podcast, help both in the rotation and the bullpen. They got two of the best relievers available, Michael Fulmer and Jorge Lopez. They also added Tyler Molly, who's a nice starter as well those are two teams that really jumped out to me um the twins in particular i thought really really did a good job kind of solidifying their hold on the al central how about for you i i gotta start with the twins as well partly because
2: okay they got guys in the case of molly especially in the case of lopez they got guys who should help them not just this year but next year as well which is always a nice addition like tyler molly is a key rotation fixture for them next year as well for a team that doesn't have a whole lot of starters but the other thing is, is you also look at, it's not all in a vacuum, right? They're in the AL Central, the, which is, let's just be clear, not the, um, this is not the AL East. This is not the NL West when it comes to the, uh, the grand. The, this is a division where 90 wins may be enough to, to win you a pennant. And the key thing is, is they fixed or did as much as they can to fix multiple areas that were problems for them. And the two teams were competing with them. I look at the White Sox, I look at the Guardians and I say, guys, you know, it, the, the deadline was was August 2nd. Like there, there's, there's no, there's no waiver deadline now either. This is, you're, you're done now really kind of helping your team. And you had two other teams here. I look at the Guardians and I say, you have a very crowded 40 man to do the credit of having a ton of young talent, another wave of guys who they're going to need to add to the 40 man roster in the off season. And they just sat pat. They didn't really. Okay, they, got,
3: they got Ian Hamilton.
2: So there you go. From the, the twins. The trade
3: they... which by the
2: way, I think that the, I, I do believe that the twins have already won that trade because Sandy Leone in his first game, which they were desperate for catching help. And Sandy Leone had two hits and help them win a game in his first game, which is probably two more hits than I expected San De Leon to have this year for them. The guy's not much of a hitter at this point, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that's one. The other thing that I would say is, is I look at Seattle. And again, the key part of this is Seattle, which I go back to being relevant matters for one. If I'm a Seattle Mariners fan, you have been, a you have been waiting years and years and years for for a playoff appearance i mean we're not talking about a world series title that's something that's almost beyond the dreams of a mariners fan at this point if you're a longtime Mariners fan but being relevant and they added a guy who you would be very comfortable starting game one of a playoff series that's and they did it they gave up a pretty good haul but they did it where they didn't damage their big league team in, in any way as well. I think that what they did makes them a team that has more, much more dangerous come postseason in 2022, but also much more dangerous in 2023 overall as well.
3: Agreed. The Mariners have not reached the postseason since 2001, and they are the only team in the major leagues to have never reached a World Series. And they did something to help end both of those streaks. And that's all you can ask for. Another team that, that did really well I want to highlight, and then we can highlight the flip side, is the Astros. Um, they had big holes, catch from first base. They addressed both of them, getting Christian Vasquez and then getting Trey Mancini for essentially uh, as part of the three-team deal, getting a, a hitter of Trey Mancini's caliber for Chase McDermott and Jose Siri is an absolute steal. Just big props to the Astros. They were already one of the American League's best teams and, and they got that much better. Um, and that kind of leads me into the teams I thought that really did had very poor deadlines. And, and it starts with the Orioles. You know, put aside Trey Mancini and... and the soft factors right his leadership the fact he beat cancer what he represents to the fans all of which matter and are important but let's be as cold and calculating about this as possible because that's where teams operate in a lot of ways now he was the orioles leader in on base percentage at the time of the trade he was second on the team in ops plus at the time of the trade he was among their team leaders in batting average actually i believe he was their team leader in batting average excuse me home runs rbis however you want to measure it top three top five By any objective measure, Trey Mancini was one of the top three hitters on the Orioles and a team that was three games out of the playoffs. And they traded him for a, a return that has potential, but it is many years away. And for a team that has been just so utterly non-competitive and talks about making the turn to competitiveness. This is counterproductive to that. Um, Trey Mancini had a mutual option with the club for next year. And here's what I go back to. Even if you don't believe the Orioles were really contenders this year, which is a perfectly valid opinion to have, as we sit here, they're a game and a half out. Are the Orioles more likely to make the postseason in 2023 with Trey Mancini in their lineup than they are without him in their lineup? The correct answer to that question is they are more likely to be a playoff team next year with Trey Mancini in their lineup. This is not a guy who's just a great story clubhouse leader, but who, you know, isn't really productive anymore. By any objective measure, he's one of their top two or three hitters. And they traded him for Seth Johnson's a nice pitching prospect. He's also hurt, won't pitch until the very end of next year at the earliest, and is about to be 25 without ever having pitched in Double A. Chase McDermott has good stuff. He also has a five and a half ERA in A ball and is struggling to throw strikes. Um, the Orioles traded one of their best players for players who won't help them for years to come when they're talking about making a turn upward. You know, I saw Michael Elias went to Houston to be with the team yesterday and talked to the team leaders about them. You know, we're about to turn upward. We're trying to compete. Actions speak louder than words. And this action told this year's Orioles team, we don't actually believe in you. It's always going to be about the future. And there comes a point where, you know, sometimes when teams are rebuilding nonstop for five years, it's hard to shift from, okay, it's no longer about oh, getting the greatest value for three years down the road, you need to start winning today. And Trey Mancini gives the Orioles a better chance to win today and tomorrow than anything they acquired.
2: I'll I'll give the counter-argument on that, which is Trey Mancini, I would say, is right now at this moment, at the time of the trade, is probably the Orioles' fourth or fifth best position player. And I say that because Adley Rushman right now at this moment is better. I think we both agree on that. Mm-hmm. Like he has okay, Anthony Santander is better. He's he's got twice as much. They're both kind of middle of the order bats, but he has a similar on base percentage with significantly more power. And mm-hmm. I think batting average wise, they're right there together.
3: I think those Ced- are too. look Cedric at Cedric the- Mullins.
2: Cedric Mullins is better because Cedric Mullins. I said position player. Cedric Mullins gives you much more value defensively, and gives you much more value on the base pass. And again, when you talk about as a hitter, they're different type hitters, but he is, he's a lesser hitter than Mancini, but everything else he gives you is more than Mancini. Mancini is predominantly a DH at this point.
3: And that's that's, where he's. Again, and that's where the defensive value comes in. And It's totally fine to have that, you know, want to take that into account. But at the end of the day, you need bats in your lineup. And he's a big bat in that lineup. And he's a core. When you say big bat, he's, he's. If you said, let's just look
2: at his offensive value this year, which is having a better year this year than he had last year, and just purely on offensive value, if you want to look at it by way it runs created, by OPS Plus,
3: he is about the – Second or third best on that team. They need him. But
2: in the majors overall, he's about – he's one of the 125, 150 best hitters in baseball right now.
3: That's, that's, that's about here. where his his on-base and batting averages are significantly higher than that. They're more top 50. But he's, but he's look, a DH, and, but he's and, a for slug, slugging. And what's interesting about the slug is if you actually look at the expected numbers, he's actually hitting this he and, will be better. and He's gotten hurt. If you he will look, be his, better
2: outside of Camden. But his, max I, I just his, don't... His,
3: his max exit velocity is top 20% in baseball. His hard hit percentage, his average exit velocity, right. he will... all expected slug, all are well, 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 well above average, his barrel percentage. I think this is actually just a case where his slug numbers have been hurt by them moving the fences back. If you look at his expected slug, it's more than fine. He's hitting baseball I, I, hard and he's going I, I to, we're going to see a huge uptick in home run production going from the fences move back to Camden to that, to the Crawford boxes in Houston. This is going to be an impact okay. player for the Astros. Right now the, uh, the Orioles are 54 and 51
2: mm-hmm. at the end of the year. So they are three games above 500 as we record this podcast. What do you think they will be when the season's over, having traded away Mancini and Lopez? I don't think it'll significantly change what they will be over the rest of the year.
3: And, that's, and, and by the way, for the record, I think it changes a little bit. To me, it's more about next year. You're talking about turning up next year. You have a mutual option for Mancini that the Orioles would have been foolish not to exercise. And given everything Mancini has said about his love for Baltimore, it's reasonable to expect he would have agreed to it. Um, that to me is where it doesn't make sense. It's not about this year. It's next year, the year the Orioles are supposed to turn upward. You are more likely to be a playoff team with Trey Mancini than without him. That's the issue.
2: And, and my thing is, is I think that they will be able on the free agent market to find guys who will pro- provide be value beyond what they got for Trey Mancini for next year with a little more defensive versatility, all that. Again, it's to be like, I factors
3: don't... Come in. So you have production, but then you also add in the clubhouse leadership, what he means to the franchise, what he does to that team marketing-wise, there's added value I there think, that I don't think should be discounted. And I think they missed uh, it. No. fundamentally underestimated that, and I think that's part of the reason why. Like Elias realized, oh, we just got crushed for this. I have to fly to Houston to address the he team. Should. Under- and he make- should, and he should have done that. <laughs> I agree, but I think should've. they underestimated that. This is a very quant-driven organization that I think is realizing it's not just quant factors you have to take into account with I, player moves. Once you get to I this mean, point in the process, I should say.
2: Mike Elias, I mean, again, you and we'll open up the uh, the, the floodgates for the. all well, the Astros or Cheaters and all that. He was involved in a team, building a team that was on the, scout, a, on, the,
3: on the on the draft side. But once we start talking about the guys who put the major league roster together, that was a lot of theirs. He was on the draft side for most of the run.
2: I, again, I will I will just say, like, I do think that – I think the thing I will say is this, where I will agree with you is this. I think that this Baltimore team, this is – a little bit of a false dawn right now. And the reason I say that is, if you say, why has this team this year been so successful? I would say the biggest reason is because their bullpen has been exceptional. Their bullpen has been great. Their starting pitching's not great. Their their lineups, not great. But their bullpen is great. But the thing that is hardest to do, great bullpens do not basically ensure you that you will have great bullpens the year after the year after that. That is a very... Uh, that is a, a group relievers wax and wane very quickly. And so I do think that the Orioles could be a better team in 2023. But if the bullpen is not this, they're not going to have the pieces yet in place to really be a contender next year. I may agree with you on that, but I just don't think it'll be because they traded Mancini. I think it'll be because they'll look at it next year and go, Oh, Dylan Tate is not having the year that he had last year. CNL Perez is not having the year he had last year. Felix Bautista is not having the year he had last year. And I think that that could be a concern. So, okay. We disagree on the Orioles. That's fine. That's, we can have a productive disagreement. Who else, Kyle? Like, is there any other team that stood out to you um, good or bad that we haven't covered yet that before we wrap this up that you want to touch on?
3: Yeah. The other team that I I thought really kind of did not have the deadline they needed to have was the Dodgers, um, which is odd because for the most part this is a team that's been pretty aggressive in getting the help they needed Um, This team needs back-end bullpen help. I talked about it on our pre-deadline podcast where, you know, Brewster Gratterall's hurt, Blake Trannan's hurt. I know they're scheduled to come back, but you never know what you're getting when guys come back from injuries. Um, Daniel Hudson's out for the year. You know, they're banking on Dustin May coming back, probably helping them in the bullpen. Again, he's coming off TJ. You're banking on three injured guys to kind of help you. You know, Evan Phillips has been good, but they need more than one reliable reliever. And, you know, in terms of the end of games, Craig Kimbrell, again, last night loaded the bases. He has been really, really shaky. You know, I look around and see what the Twins gave up for Michael Fulmer, that the Dodgers could have matched that and exceeded that. I see Gregory Soto and Andrew Chafin still sitting on the Tigers roster. I mean, there are a lot of bullpen arms that could pitch, you know, seventh, eighth, maybe even ninth as needed. That were available, and the Dodgers didn't make a move to get any of them. Um, instead, they acquired some other prospects, then acquired Joey Gallo, who you know at this point is a power bat off the bench, late-game defensive replacement. The, the Dodgers don't need another left-handed hitter with power who doesn't make enough contact. They have two of those guys already: and Max Muncy and Cody Bellinger. The way they're playing this year, they didn't get what they needed, and what they did get, they already kind of have too much of and they also traded Jake Lamb who's been pretty productive for them so um, it was a very confusing trade deadline for the Dodgers where they had needs they didn't do anything about them and then the player they acquired doesn't help them really I mean again maybe some some late game pop and defensive replacement but um, he fits a profile offensively that they already kind of have too much of so that was one where you look at everything the Potters did and everything the Dodgers did I mean it kind of goes back to look the Dodgers are 11 and a half games up on the Padres as we sit here and record this podcast. Uh, they're five and two against the Padres this year, but the Padres just got significantly better. And I think the Dodgers didn't do anything to make themselves better. There's a three game series this weekend in LA between the two teams. It's going to be really, really interesting to see what this reloaded Padres team, how they perform against this Dodgers team does.
2: I, I, it is kind of uh, speculative, but it is, it's going to be interesting to see if, if everyone comes back for help, the Dodgers or even half of the guys like if they get Dustin May they've got Dustin May Walker Buehler Star Gratterall they if if half of these guys come back they'll be fine because like Dustin May like you said they don't have any room in the rotation for Dustin May he's he's purely a reliever for the rest of the year probably for them I don't even know if Buehler comes back at, they're they're kind of they're still someone has to go, I don't know who it would be, but someone has to go to the bullpen come the postseason because they have four other starters right now who absolutely positively, you say, start postseason games. Every single one of them you would be quite happy with, which is an embarrassment of riches compared to most teams out there. But it does require that if Bueller comes back, Bueller's in that starting rotation, I would imagine, if he's healthy. And if he is, then all of a sudden – you have guys like Tony Gonsolin who may be pitching out of your pen and all of a sudden you've gotten a lot deeper in your pen. It is interesting though. The, the one team I wanted to, to touch on before we finished up, that I thought did a really good job is when I look at the Reds, I think the Reds have really um, a few years ago, they really botched uh, a rebuild. And, and I say that in part, they've done this. They've kind of botched this twice because They hung on to everyone a little too long if you go back almost a decade now. But the last time that there was a really good Reds team, they were really good. And then they kind of ran out of gas, but they held on to everybody to try to make one more push. And they should have held on to everybody. And so what ended up happening is is they ended up trading a lot of guys. They managed to trade a lot of guys at the only time that they haven't had trade value. Like that enrolled as Chapman trade. Is just one of the epic bad trades of uh, of the last uh, ten years. Then they kind of they traded guys like Josiah Gray and uh, you know and Jeter Downs to get clear a payroll, which didn't really help them. But I look at this year and I say the, the packages they got for Castillo, the packages they got for Tyler Maly, the package they got for Brandon Drury, This is now a team that has all of a sudden a really good farm system a whole lot of options, a whole lot of up-the-middle players who are going to, should, not all of them are going to work out, but they should give them a whole lot of ways to figure out a lineup for 23, 24, 25. And they could be somewhat interesting in a couple of years. Um, and they weren't going anywhere before, so that's actually, I, I give them credit for, especially that Castillo trade, getting good value at, at the deadline.
3: I wrote about this looking at the players they had received, you know, recently for Racer Iglesias, Tucker Barnhart, that gave way Wade Miley, even Sonny Gray. They had just not gotten anywhere near enough. What they were doing before in terms of the guys they were trading, the value they were getting back was kind of pathetic, just to be frank. It was really kind of an, you know, it was not helping them in any way, shape, or form. And seeing how much of an about-face they did this deadline, you know, clearly something changed, whether it was philosophy, whether it was scouting, whether it was resources, because... Really, I think for the first time since they've been, you know, peeling away the layers of this most recent team, they actually got equivalent or really good value. Again, Luis Castillo is a stud. They did really well getting both Noelvi Marte and Edwin Arroyo. And oh, by the way, Stout and Moore the third and fourth pieces are really good. Um, you mentioned the Twins trade. I will go so far as to say that as long as the Reds have been doing this most recent stripping away of the team, this is the first time that they've really gotten enough and been like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And that's going to get them on the right track. If you add that to L.A. De La Cruz and a lot of the other up the middle players you have, you know what? The Reds did a good job. Again, when you're a selling team, what you're trying to do is enhance your future. In the past, when they've been a selling team, they have failed to do that. This time they did it. And I think they deserve credit. Again, if we're going to criticize when they do something wrong, we have to give credit when they do something right. I've criticized plenty in the past and it's time to give them credit. They executed this trade deadline very, very well.
2: So to wrap this up, the thing that is awesome and also a uh, cautionary tale about the trade deadline is, is that it doesn't. it's not necessarily the team that makes the splashiest move at the trade deadline that ends up winning the World Series. And it's not even necessarily that a team that does anything at the trade deadline is what wins the World Series. But that said, I do think what we've seen this year is we are setting up for... It could be a really, especially on the National League side. I really hope we've got to have a Dodgers-Padres series at some point in this postseason, don't we? Like, I I feel like for
3: every single game, if there is one.
2: (laughs) Yes, and I I feel like we need that, don't we? Like, that's that's what will kind of take this to another level is to have those two teams wailing away, ideally in a seven-game series. But you have the Braves are should be back, you know. You have the Mets, the National League, especially. Postseason should be really interesting.
3: Yeah, it's going to be a great race to finish. Um, the Brewers don't quite kind of stack up with any of those teams any longer after trading away Josh Hader. I think those four have separated themselves. The American League, too, you know, both the Yankees and Astros, the two best teams in, in that league, got a lot better. I mean, the Yankees getting Frankie Montas for, you know, I mean, some good prospects, but way less than what the Mariners paid for Luis Castillo. Um, that was a great addition. I talked about the Astros getting Christian Vasquez and Trey Mancini. Both those two teams got stronger. Also the Yankees getting, you know, guys like Scott Efros help in the bullpen. I mean, I think, you know, those two teams I think have been on an ALCS collision course pretty much the whole season. And I think they've strengthened their position. So that's gonna be a great series. And you know there's no love lost between those two teams. And then yeah, whether it's, you know, Potter's Dodgers, Mets Dodgers, you know, Braves Potters, any combination of those four teams. It looks like it's going to be a lot of fun.
2: It is going to be a lot of fun. For Kyle, I'm JJ. So long, everybody.
0: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward.